Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to the latest episode of Miked Up with Chiral with Tim and Brandon. This is going to be an awesome podcast because it's on a topic that's hard. Not that it's hard to treat, not that it's hard to recognize, it's hard for everyone else to recognize. But as evidence-based chiropractors, I am telling you, this is a huge population of patients that we are given to us because no one else is able to treat it effectively. It's the shoulder. It's a hypermobile joint. And it's something that as chiropractors, we're very good at treating the hypomobile areas. But are we good at recognizing and treating hypermobile joints. So today's podcast is on the shoulder. I just covered that. But more importantly, we're going to go a touch against the grain and we're going to answer some big topics that I learned to be true in school that aren't necessarily the entire truth. So we're going to go through Codman's critical zone. You guys remember that? Codman's critical zone, what is it and why it's not exactly true is going to get covered in this podcast. We're also going to go through Charles near shoulder dysfunction continuum and how we can improve it, meaning it's not just scapular dyskinesis to impingement syndrome to rotator cuff tear to uh, that there's, there's a piece in there that we can improve upon. And if we can do that effectively, we can really improve our clinical care. And then finally, we're going to go over that nasty acromion that's digging into everybody's rotator cuff and tearing it, which doesn't happen. So what is the acromion? Why it doesn't dig into rotator cuffs and cause tears is going to be the last piece of this podcast. But before we dive into that, just a reminder that if you haven't hit the follow button, make sure you share this episode with a friend. It really does help us reach more uh, and more great DCs uh, just like yourself. So let's get into the shoulder. But before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, what's happening in practice right now? Now, we're in St. Louis. Things are heating up as far as outside. However, I can tell you right now with summertime activities, uh, we're seeing this issue with capacity. Now, most of the time capacity is going to be space. It could be staff. It could be policies. It could be procedures. Last month, it wasn't any of those. It was actual bandwidth of our internet. Our internet crashed. Now, this is a, you know, someone may laugh, you know, oh, your internet crashed. How bad is that? It's bad. When your internet goes down, it's really bad. Um, so it happened to us There's once. There's no YouTube videos. There's no social media. Everything. <laughs> no one in the entire office could access Facebook. It was a really big problem. Um, but realistically, when that happens, do you have a policy procedure? I'll tell you one thing. We didn't. Um, we just kind of started winging it as we, as we went on, uh, which is not a good strategy. It's not a good feeling when your patients know that you don't have a policy procedure in place. So one thing that we did, and maybe you can do this in your office, uh, is have some laptops. So we have three laptops in our office. They're automatically already set up on, um, on Google with the appropriate bookmarks for our uh, EMR, for our um, payment processing. I mean, these things are 
are ready to go. Uh, and then we can automatically link those to a cell phone. And now we have internet. Uh, there's probably other ways we can do that on paper, but we are already electronic office. Let's keep electronic. So something that hopefully never happens again, but it did. So we don't ever want it to happen again. Uh, also kiosks. We have forgotten about paper. I mean, we were but 100% electronic 10 years ago. We've never had more paper in our office since we went 100% electronic. Uh, most of those processes just aren't as fast, unfortunately. We're using kiosks now for our intake surveys, our history, our demographics, um, our disability surveys. Everything now is going through these kiosks. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end. However, that has saved me time. It's made me a more effective uh, practitioner, but my staff loves it. Uh, not having to fill out demographic surveys, not having to double entry stuff. Uh, it's been a game changer for us. Uh, finally, uh, getting into the fall, um, we uh, we start to speak a little bit more. Tim, where are you off to this uh, this fall and end of the summer? Well, we'll have by the end of this podcast, we'll have wrapped up our FTCA talk, uh, which will be exciting. Uh, I'm going to be headed to Ohio, North Dakota, Illinois, Arkansas, and Parker, Dallas for their homecoming. We're excited about that. If you want to see any of the spots that either of us are speaking, you can go to CairoUp.com in the resources tab, look for the live CE events, and you'll see the whole schedule. And before we jump into our topic of the day, which is the shoulder, we always have our random research. And this one is about knee pain. And it turns out that running quicker actually helps knee pain. That we find that gait really is a measure of knee health. People who walk and run will typically tell you how their knee feels as you watch that. And people who have knee pain have a lower cadence, a shorter stride, they have more significant pelvic drop, which not surprisingly was probably one of the causes of developing knee pain in the first place and certainly limited range of motion. And the American Journal of Sports Medicine said there are things that we can do to help improve this. In fact, a single session of gait retraining using a simple rule decreases knee pain and knee function. And that simple rule is have the patient increase their step rate. Rather than taking a long, slow stride, have them take a short, quick stride. Increasing your gait uh, step rate by 10% leads to long-term improvements. So one thing that I teach my patients is imagine you're running on the sun with a short, quick stride. In fact, a lot of sources will say the ideal cadence is 180. That's pretty quick. You can have the patient put a metronome on their phone for an app to kind of learn what 180 feels like. And shortening that stride makes a big difference in how their knee feels. If you would like to relay that information to your patients, you can jump into the forms library. And in the forms library, there is an infographic on proper running mechanics. You can print that out or even make a social media post because it's turning into running season now in the fall when people are, it's a little cooler, their schedules are slowing down, and they're looking to get in shape before the end of the year. So give them that information. They'll be grateful. I agree. I mean, the number one factor is run faster. I also change your step width with some patients when they're running with a crossover gait. And those are modifiable things that can really affect uh, the, the biomechanics, but also in this case, pain. What about those non-modifiable limitations that our patients have? You know, those patients with ACL injuries, past knee injuries, meniscus problems, early onset knee osteoarthritis. Uh, those are all things that limit the ability for the knee to fully extend, and that's a problem. Uh, so one of the things you can get in Cairo up are some exercises to help improve knee extension. 
Uh, you can go the traditional terminal knee extensions with the band. Uh, there's also some great directional preference exercises that take advantage of the screw hole mechanism of the knee, meaning you can get that knee extension with overpressure. We have that and we have a standing and we have a supine, but also some knee extension exercise with internal rotation overpressure. So some, some good exercise in Cairo. Check those out. Make sure we're doing everything possible to help our patients get out of pain. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things is the ability for a joint to have full range of motion. Yeah, let's step this up, literally. Let's move from the knee to the shoulder. So our topic of the month today is the rotator cuff. We're going to talk about why Codman's zone really isn't that critical and how Charles Neer's shoulder dysfunction continuum might be improved and why acromions matter and do they really dig into the rotator cuff. So first of all, Brandon, tell us about Codman's critical zone. What is it? Does it matter? Yeah, this is one of the things that you learn about in school. It's on boards. Um, you know, it's one of those things that everybody has to go through and learn. But this is a zone in the rotator cuff, about one centimeter um, proximal to the insertion of the supersonatus. It's on the greater, uh, as far as from the greater tubercle of the humeral head. And this is within the region of the supraspinous tendon. The reason I don't say the supraspinous tendon is because all those tendons kind of merge into a synthesis of tendons that wrap around the glenohumeral joint. Um, and this is in the orientation of the supraspinous muscle. Uh, this is a watershed area between the anterior and posterior circumflex humeral and uh, thoracoacromial and superhumeral arteries. And the reason I use all those big names and I have none of those memorized, they're just written in front of me. Um, but this is a area that all those arteries are kind of coming to an end. And it was thought, uh, at least back in the, uh, the 30s, is that due to this problem that we have a watershed area that does not have enough blood supply. Now, that was blamed for why we have so much impingement and rotator cuff tears in this critical zone and that we have this diminution in blood flow. However, what we're seeing from more recent papers, I know Good Murphy put out a paper in 2003, Brooks in 1992, is that this area um, is technically a watershed area. We can't deny that. Um, but areas closer to a tendon tear are not hypovascular. In fact, when we see these areas of uh, tendon disruption, we actually see hyperperfusion in that critical zone, meaning the, the tissue is trying to heal. Um, and when it's trying to heal, we actually see a hypervascular response. We see the body trying to throw down some new arteries, throw down some new nerves to get this area to heal and some more inflammation, but it becomes ineffective perfusion of that tissue. Ineffective perfusion because usually that patient doesn't stop what they're doing and doesn't allow it to heal and keeps on doing their daily uh, job or sport or what have you. But when we see these areas, the body's trying to heal that area. Now, Good Murphy uh, affirmed, you know, there, this is a avascular area. Um, however, when Codman did these papers, the arm was held in an externally rotated extended position. And unfortunately, when you keep your arm in that position, um, there, it will be compression between the humerus and that acromion. So yes, you know, during that um, the test that Codman uh, was doing, you will see less perfusion in that area. Um, so, uh, but the research that we're seeing now challenges the notion that it's not just simply an anatomical region of hypovascularity at rest. In fact, it has normal vascularity at rest. It's not until you put the arm in the position that Codman put them in do you start to see the effects of that watershed area. So I'm not saying what Codman did was wrong. It's right. It's 100% right. And we need to take that into uh, in consideration. So when you really look at the, the, the lessons that we can learn from Codman's uh, you know, hallmark papers, what does it prove? Yeah, it proves that 
patients that Cabman tested, which were patients who had shoulder impingement or rotator cuff problems, did have that area of hypovascularity when they raised their arm. So first of all, when they raise their arm, as you said, you're getting some impingement, but you're also getting a ringing of that tendon, kind of like taking a soaked beach towel and you twist it up. When you abduct your arm, there's some twisting of the tendon. So yes, it's going to squish out some of the blood supply in the area. The other thing that's that's happening to that area is some potential traction ischemia. So this is more of a functional issue. When we think about the rotator cuff tendon, let's imagine that that tendon is a bundle of bungee cords that you've bent over the top of an exercise ball. So it's just going from the top to the side of the ball at a 90 degree angle. Well, that tendon is going to have areas of tension and areas of compression. And it's important to be able to differentiate if a problem started via tension or compression in order to know how to manage that problem. uh, Tendons typically fail, rotator cuff tendons typically fail on the undersurface. They, they, They fail on the surface where those bungee cords are touching the ball. And those bungee cords are under greater compression as opposed to tension that the that fibers on top of that bundle are under greater tension. The fibers on the bottom are under compression. Just imagine you're wearing a sport coat and you bend your elbow. The underside is going to have compression. It's going to wrinkle up. And the top side is going to be under tension. So tension type injuries are usually an acute type problem. This is a fall. This is an injury where somebody stretched it and they tore fibers. They might hear a pop or feel a pop. It's an inflammatory process where there's a lot of vascularity. It is trying to get into the tissue and is getting into the tissue. And our goal is potentially to reduce the amount of inflammation in the area. Versus the more common compressive injuries, this would certainly be more than 9 out of 10 of the rotator cuffs that you and I see. It's something that's been around for an extended period of time. And it's turning into a chronic degenerative tendon. It's not inflamed. Yes, it has a hypervascular response on the outside, but it's trying to pump that hypervascularity through beef jerky. So it's actually a hypoperfusion of that tissue. And these are our patients that we're going to manage in a completely different way. We're not going to suppress inflammation. We're going to generate a controlled inflammatory reaction with things like trans-restriction massage or dry needling or shockwave therapy, the types of things that now make a big difference in how that patient recovers comes down to blood flow. I mean, that's, it's crazy how that happens. And we'll, we'll go into that in a little bigger of a, um, a topic in the next couple of sections. Um, but as we age, that vascularity decreases, you know, if we like it or not. Uh, now, if we take that decrease of vascularity, plus the mechanical aspects of you know, that superior shearing of that glenohumeral joint up into that acromioclavicular ligament. It's a big word. Uh, I know. Uh, I should get some points for that, or at least some money. Uh, that we have these uh, degenerative processes happen. So uh, age is a big piece of this, um, but also just the activity of our patients. So uh, we'll start to see our athletes. And unfortunately, in today's world, our high school, uh, even before high school and college athletes, they're going through a lot of activity. Now, they're not playing baseball three times a week for practice. Uh, they're doing three times a week and then five games on the weekend, and they're not getting a break. So unfortunately, we can start to see those external fibers, those fibers on uh, the on the outer surface, start to fail. And that's something that we need to take in consideration. But 
With that being said, it's not necessarily a strengthening game at that point. It's a healing game still. It's not necessarily the patient needs to learn how to throw better so they can throw a hundred times in the morning, in the afternoon, in the, the you know on Sunday for baseball. They need more rest. And not only do they need more rest, but they need um, you know less compression when they are resting. So, you know, your baseball pitcher sleeping on his shoulder, your baseball player who's uh, you know at in college who's using a mouse and having their arm elevated the entire time. So not only teaching them what causes the problem, but also those factors that limit healing will be critical in any kind of multifactorial uh, rehabilitation program that you provide to your patients. So to, to kind of summarize this entire thing, um, that most of the damage happens to the rotator cuff on the articular side. It's due to compression, and that decompression results in a lack of healing. That that, la- that constant compression to that undersurface area of the supersonatus is a far greater threat than any kind of tension. So always think about that during your rehab program. It's not just strengthening tissue. Sometimes you have to get it to calm down and allow that tissue to heal to begin with. Yeah, that, that compression is part of the continuum, and that's what we're going to dive into next. The rotator cuff continuum, as described by Charles Neer. We'll talk about the coracochromial ligament, the mysterious ligament of why it even exists and what does it matter. And finally, is surgery the most appropriate option? And a quick hint, no, we're going to see the research says that what you and I do is the most appropriate option. But before we dive into those topics, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15 percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. Wow, that program sounds pretty cool. Uh, But let's get back to the facts about the shoulder. And that is, how does Dr. Charles Neer's shoulder dysfunction continuum exist? And could it be improved? If you remember that continuum, Neer said that in order to have a rotator cuff rupture, first you have to have some tearing of fibers. That's pretty simple. But he said that 95% of those patients who have some tearing of fibers actually had shoulder impingement as the underlying diagnosis, meaning that each time the patient raised their arm, that tendon was being wrung out or compressed or irritated or stretched, and it was ischemic. And he said that 100% of patients who have impingement have scapular dyskinesis, meaning the shoulder blade is not getting out of the way. So that process is a well-known phenomenon that we say, yes, that's happened in in a consistent number of patients. And that patients who have that scapular dyskinesis are highly predisposed to rotator cuff damage. The thing about this is that it's all happening at the same time, and it's a matter of which tissue fails first. We know that the stage of subacromial impingement, that Nier said there, there was a type, uh, a phase one, two, and three, and it was just a matter of going from inflammation to a little bit of compression and ischemia to frank degeneration that was almost irreversible. That process correlates directly with the degree of biceps degeneration. Remember the biceps tendon, it's irritated in the same spot that we often think of bicipital tendonitis being in the, in the groove, that it's in, uh, you know, below the shoulder, and it's actually happening below the acromial 
acromion that the long head of the biceps inserts right next to the supraspinatus tendon. So when that uh, humeral head rides up and compresses the biceps tendon and the supraspinatus tendon against the acromion, both of them suffer. So it's not a surprise that biceps degeneration goes hand in hand with rotator cuff tendinopathy. In fact, biceps degeneration accompanies almost every shoulder problem. And 60% of patients who have a rotator cuff tear have a, sup- a subscapularis involvement. That's from the Journal of Orthoscopic and Related Surgery in 2022. It, I mean, this is, this is huge. Um, so I think that whenever I look at orthopedic testing, in fact, I think I, I, think I learned this from you, Tim, is that uh, orthopedic testing, while it has fancy names and positions and that kind of stuff, but really we're just trying to stretch things or compress things or make things work. And that's it, you know. So when we do that, we're looking for a symptom response. And that symptom response, in the case of most orthopedic testing, is a painful response. That's the tissue that has gave way. That's the weakest tissue in the area that's, that's injured or inflamed. However, that's not necessarily the problem. Um, what we'll see is that the problem associated with the shoulder is a lack of glenohumeral stability. And just like you talked about with the subscapularis, we don't start to see failing of that tissue. We don't start to see weakness in that tissue until it's already significantly torn or dysfunctional. In fact, when you do the biceps uh, or the belly press test and Napoleon's test or the bear hug test, the the typical ones you do for testing the strength of subscapularis, you need 30 to 50% of that tendon torn before you start to see weakness. The most common test you're gonna see for the subscapularis is subscapularis liftoff test. You need 75% of that uh, tendon torn before you start to see weakness. That's a big problem, meaning that tendon is failing. I'm sorry, muscle is, is failing. The muscle tendon junction is failing. Um, and why would it be failing? Um, and the reason it's failing is because you have lack of glenohumeral stability. It's allowing that glenohumeral joint to ride up. So, um, you know, we can uh, be nice to the tissue that's failing because when you uh, let that ball roll up, that tendon in the middle, the subscapularis, and also that biceps tendon, the ones that are painful, those are the ones that are going to show up as positive in our orthopedic examination. We need to be nice to those areas. We need to ice it, rest it, calm it down. But if we don't attack the actual problem, which in the case of most uh, uh, rotator cuff issues, the subscapularis, um, we're setting that patient up for failure. Um, So orthopedic testing is extremely, extremely valuable in practice. However, taking into consideration everything that nears looking at with a scapular dyskinesis and shoulder stability, we can't forget about those things. Uh, Just getting things to calm down with impingement syndrome is important, but don't forget to strengthen the rotator cuff. And also don't forget about the other things that could be limiting that person from healing. When you look at the actual clinical prediction rules for rotator cuff injuries, uh, only one of them is a mechanical. The rest are all metabolic syndromes and overuse activities, uh, diabetes, thyroid disease, those things limiting someone from healing. So don't forget that second arm of the treatment. Uh, the take-home point from this, you know, when we look at you know the, the shoulder dysfunction continuing from near, is it's not necessarily that simple. And don't get frustrated because your patient probably already is. And that's okay that you can have multiple diagnoses. When you're looking at the shoulder, you're peeling an onion of dysfunctions. Could they have test positive for the biceps? Yes. Could they have uh, test positive for a labor problem? Yes. Rotator cuff? Yes. Uh, All those things can test positive. In fact, when you look at the research, we're going to see a lot of nerve involvement. Nerve mobilization can help with rotator cuff injuries. Definitely involved as far as the median nerve. So 
work on them in a hierarchical uh, aspect, uh, start to attack one at a time, and don't forget to strengthen the entire complex. Your body doesn't know specific muscles and those movements. So making sure you take a global approach, strengthen the shoulder blade, the shoulder girdle, uh, and don't even forget about the core. Um, so all those things to be taken into consideration and not in isolation. The last one we're going to talk about is the acromion. This is one that I learned that, you know, if that acromion starts to, uh, to dig into the rotator cuff, you got to cut it out. Um, so Tim, what does the research tell us about the acromion shape and does it matter? Yeah, many years ago, uh, we characterized acromions into either being flat, and 20% of the population has a perfectly flat acromion, whereas 55% of them have a little bit of a curve to that acromion. We call that a type 2. And 25% of the most unlucky patients have a beaked acromion, meaning that the tip of the acromion is not flat or curved. In fact, the curve has gone to the point that it's pointing nearly straight down, right at the vulnerable supraspinatus tendon, getting ready to dig in and chop through that tendon. Maybe. That type 3 is more common in males, but it's present in 75% of patients who have a rotator cuff tear. So weren't they unlucky to be born with a type 3 acromion? Well, maybe not. The data suggests that that acromion morphology doesn't necessarily contribute to rotator cuff tear or healing. It may actually be a a symptom of that problem as opposed to a predisposition to that problem. Now certainly it doesn't help to have a beaked acromion because you're further impinging the subacromial space, but really that was something that developed as a result of the problem, as a result of the scapular dyskinesis, and it all centers around the coracoacromial ligament. Have you ever wondered what the purpose of that ligament is? That attaches the coracoid to the acromion both of which are on the same bone, I'm pretty sure they'd be stable without that ligament there. They would hold themselves together by themselves. So Brandon, why does that ligament exist and what happens to it? I think what you just said, it's just kind of summed it up, um, is it's a result. So unfortunately, what we're going to see is that you're going to have a pathoanatomical change to that acromion due to longstanding hypermobility of the glenohumeral joint. So if you have two bones, uh, like you said, they're not moving anywhere. Uh, you need forgiveness because what that glenohumeral joint is going to do is as you pick it up into flexion or abduction, is it will start to migrate up there. And there is squishy stuff in the middle. Like you said, the biceps tendon, you have a bursa, you have the supraspinatus, you have tissue that doesn't like to be pinched. So that acrom or that coracochromial ligament, look, I said you it right said there. It right. I, you know what? Yeah. I, you can teach old dogs new tricks. Um, it's funny whenever you talked about the biceps, I was like intertrabecular, oh, intertrabecular, intertrabecular. Like I was trying to think of the groove. I'm like, oh, I can't. it's been a long day already. Um, no, but really, with this being the case, is that it reminds me of the heel spur discussion. That so many people have uh, heel spurs due to long-standing plantar fasciitis. That spur is not the cause of their pain. That is the result of long-standing irritation and injury to the plantar fascia. At a certain point, your body says, I'm done trying to heal tissue. I'm just going to throw down some calcification to help stabilize that area. And that is the exact same process that happens at the coracochromial ligament. That constant tenting and forgiveness of that tendon due to that arm riding up, due to that glenohumeral hypermobility, causes a non uh, or a failed healing response to that ligament and now your body starts to lay down uh, calcification so we can 
can measure this. We can look at what's the distance uh, between the width and the ratios of the coracochromial ligament, and we can see how thick the band is. But really, we need to look at what's happening at the glenar humeral joint. Are we seeing adaptive changes due to weakness of the rotator cuff causing that unopposed superior translation of the humerus? And if we are getting that, we can fix that. Um, by we, I mean a, a conversation and a strategy that you can implement that your patient can now do as far as rotator cuff strengthening using resistive exercises, using proper positioning, and most importantly, some eccentric strengthening of the appropriate muscles and movements to help get that patient to heal. I think this is one of the, the unsung heroes in shoulder um, rehabilitation that uh, our patients who go through a chromioplasty or decompression surgery and you remove that coracochromial ligament one year after they have significantly worse results because you took the only stability that person had and you cut it out. So should we be doing surgeries for people with shoulder impingement? Well, kind, kind of sounds like no, based upon that prelude. That So so summarizing this, basically, to say yes. that coracochromia depends on what your, your degree is. Uh, it, that coracochromial ligament serves as the roof of the uh, subacromial space, that when your humeral head wants to ride up, which it does, every movement we make, the deltoid's going to be involved when we raise our arm, it's pulling the humeral head up, the only thing that helps to hold that down is the rotator cuff. When those tendons are dysfunctional, it lets the humeral head ride up. That hypermobility dings the, the coracochromial ligament. It's kind of like if you dinged your finger long enough, it would develop a callus. It would thicken and then eventually probably calcify. Well, that further narrows the subacromial space. And by cutting that out, you're not solving the underlying problem. And there's research to support that, that the Journal of Arthroscopic and Related Surgery last year said this quote, Arthroscopic treatment should no longer be offered to people with subacromial impingement. Decompression for subacromial pain syndrome doesn't help pain, function, or health-related quality of life. Blank, point blank, acromioplasty does not improve the outcomes of rotator cuff repair. And this wasn't the first study that said that. This was about the fourth study that said that in a two-year period. That we know that cutting that out is not the problem, the, the, the solution. The solution is what you and I offer, and it's to get the rotator cuff functioning, to have get rid of scapular dyskinesis, to have an adequate amount of mobility in the shoulder and the scapula, and then things get happy. And we know this because we measured this with the COP study. We measured 630,000 unique presentations among our network of 2,500 providers. Scapular dyskinesis, the precursor to this whole process, was one of the top 10 diagnoses of all. And we know that all of those diagnoses that involve the rotator cuff, whether it be scapular dyskinesis, shoulder impingement syndrome, or rotator cuff tendinopathy, comprise 60% of all shoulder diagnoses. And that wasn't the COPS. That's, that's a systematic review that said that. That means that 40% of shoulder problems don't involve the rotator cuff. And we have a webinar that you can access that discusses those. If you go to uh, chiroup.com, look under the resources and the webinars, you can access that tutorial to see what are the tests and the treatments for that other 40% of problems. I have a little fun thing because I know we do a lot of research. Um, and I know there was one paper you came into my office and you talked to me about, and it was on the factors that increase prevalence of spinal pain. Do you remember that paper? I do. So give me just a little bit of a, just to kind of sum out this, this, this ending. Um, 
what did you find in there? Because I think this will actually just came to me relate to the shoulder problem. Uh, I know we work, mostly work with spinal problems, and that's why this paper would maybe appeal to more chiropractors. But what did that paper say? What were the factors associated with chronic health conditions related to the spine? Yeah, we, we often think of those chronic health problems, whether it be a neuropathy or a tendinopathy, or in this case, lower back pain as mechanical problems. And yes, there are mechanics involved with that. But the two things that we're going to recognize as the future goes on is the vascular aspect of those problems and the biopsychosocial aspect. And this paper said that things that affect vascularity, like being insufficiently active or tobacco use, can dramatically increase the prevalence of pain in those regions. Sleep problems also play a huge role, as do the biopsychosocial uh, aspects of cognitive impairment and mental health conditions, almost doubling what happens to uh, lower back pain. So we know that those odds increase with the other aspects, and in the future, we as providers need to not only address the mechanical aspects of pain, but also the vascular aspects, and at least recognize, are there yellow flags that need to be addressed? If the patient doesn't believe they're going to improve, they're not going to improve. They're right. So we need to be more of a holistic approach with regard to those aspects as well. Yeah, that was good. I mean, um, I was just thinking about that as far as the, the healing aspect. There's more to it than just us doing an orthopedic test and us doing manual therapy. Um, another interesting paper that we saw just came out this year, I believe. It was in the Scandinavian Journal. Um, was It made me remind, remind me of uh, Tom Michaud, and it was uh, the use of lateral wedge insoles. And, and we use a lot of uh, medial wedge insoles. We use the peel and stick ones you can get from human locomotion. Uh, they just help with uh, you know any kind of uh, slowing down. Uh, foot pronation with our uh, medial tibial stress syndrome, with our hip problems, our knee problems. Uh, they're easy for us and, and more importantly, easier on the patient just to stick them on the bottom of their shoes versus getting fitted for um, foot orthoses. But what this paper said was it used lateral wedge insoles that would reduce the reaction time, so speed up the reaction time, and improve dynamic balance and chronic ankle, uh, chronic ankle instability. And so I read this paper at the same time that I was, not the same time, but I was in the car listening to Gestalt Education Podcast, and Dr. Mashad was talking about falling. Not him falling, but how are we going to prevent falling? And he brought up an interesting concept that I had never thought before, that we normally don't fall in front of us. Because if you're going to fall forward, you have your toes to kind of grip into the ground uh, and you have a, a possibility of helping yourself. You normally don't fall uh, medial because if you fall medial because you have a pain on the, the right side and you fall to the left, you have your left foot to help you. When do you normally fall? It's when you're on the right foot and you fall lateral. And what this paper said was use of lateral wedge insoles can help with this process. Now, I know he has a new product out called Balance Buttons. I'm very excited to, to read the research on this. But instead of just activating those cutaneous receptors on the lateral side, like this paper is saying, and activating those, uh, those nociceptors, and you've seen things in the past like vibrating insoles and those kind of things. But unfortunately, our patients who are most prone to fall like those patients with neuropathy, uh, it could take 20% more stimulation of those cutaneous receptors by 50-year-olds. And by the time they're 80, it takes 75% more pressure to stimulate those same receptors that we have a problem. And these balance buttons are going to be helpful because they actually stimulate the joint proprioceptors on the outside part of the foot to prevent these falls. So uh, a couple of newer things in the research that have just come out, they're already back in the chiropractic, and you'll see those in your newsfeed soon. 
Um, and that's really what we try to do with ChiroUp is not necessarily uh, with our podcasts, with our blogs, with the software is to make you aware of these, uh, these new pieces of research and evidence, but it's now to put in your hands and allow you to use it. So um, what are the new things in ChiroUp really this month? Really, the newest thing in Cairo Up is we're just producing a podcast today that you mentioned age twice and didn't kick me around either time. So that's something new. That's a preview. Maybe you're getting old. <laughs> the other new stuff is we have a research review, and that uh, puts out a synopsis of about 100 different articles each month. That's on your homepage. It also uh, provides you with the resources that go with that. One of the great things about research, it teaches us new things. But if it talks about a new test, we need to see it. If it has a new exercise, we need to see it. And that's what we do. Within days of that research coming out, we'll give you the new test and the new treatment. We also have our premium materials in app. So those of you who are plus and premium subscribers who put daily social media posts out that are evidence-based and compelling to have patients take action and see you, those are available in app. We're going to be adding 10 protocols within the next month. So there's continual growth going on there. And we have a new form, the Headache Disability Index. This is an automated survey you can ship out to your patient. We already have the Oswestry and the NDI and half a dozen other surveys. Now we have the Headache Disability Index and one survey that we're particularly excited about. What's that? That's the intake survey. I know I mentioned the very beginning and I was hesitant about mentioning it, but I got to be honest, with you, it's a game changer in my practice. Um, having the ability to a patient a new patient or a new uh, injury come into my office and before they walk in my room, I already know their um, OPPQRST. You know, my 20 minute exam, my repeating myself, 90% of that is all repetitive, just gathering information that we have to do with all of our patients. Uh, instead of 20 minutes, now it's two minutes. Um, so I can summarize all this before the first visit. I'm sorry, the patient can uh, from their phone. We text it to them before they come in the office. Um, and now I'm able to get all that information. It allows me to look at this, let the patient know that I know what's wrong with them, and then get on to the nitty and gritty about their condition to help uh, solve their, their painful condition or problem, whatever they're coming in for. Uh, if you want to test this new functionality with a, as a Chiro subscriber, uh, email support at ChiroUp, and uh, they'll get you, get you hooked up with that. Uh, and hopefully it'll help you in clinical practice. Awesome. The one thing that is not new is our mission. Uh, Chiroup was made by chiropractors for chiropractors. All of the resources like that chief complaint survey were designed by practicing DCs who are still in the trenches. We share your struggles because we're in that same trench. Our passion is to advance our, our shared vocation, and that's doing it one tool and one practice at a time. There really is no other group of providers who have a shared mission to make our profession the undeniable best choice for patients and payers. So yes, we have a platform, but more importantly, we have a goal, and we're working toward that goal in a lot of ways together. And that's supporting associations. We've donated nearly 1,000 hours of CE to state and national associations. If we've not been to your state or association, hit us up. We would love to help, help support that. One thing about a state association is we're both part of our state association. If you like what your state association is doing, great, join it, monetarily and time-wise, get involved. If you don't like what your state association is doing, great, sign up, join, and get involved. Uh, I'm tired of hearing that, that, oh, I don't like what my state association is doing. 
you know what? If you are not a part of your state association and there are state laws and legislation, things that are happening and you're not a part of it, you're not at the table when it comes to legislation, you're getting served. So like it or not, um, they are wellness for your practice. Um, it is what it is. Uh, they protect the right for you to practice. Uh, assisting students, uh, you know, one of the things that we also do is, uh, which many people, I, I guess, don't know, uh, we're, we're, it's very easy to sign up, but if you are a student or your faculty, you have a free account in Cairo Up. Uh, the goal of this is to up the entire profession and that if we can help our students and our faculty and our schools uh, get real-time up-to-date evidence on how they can help patients faster, more effectively, more efficiently, uh, we do that at no cost. Yeah, the other thing that's crucial is the research that these podcasts and the webinars, the Cairo Up blog, and the foundation of Cairo Up was based on research. All of the great ideas that the hardworking researchers put out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Everything that they put out, those best practices are the things that power us. They're the things that are going to move our profession forward. So we collaborate with those researchers to help define the best practices. We also support those researchers. Last year, we made a $10,000 commitment to NCMIC. And we've also created some of our own research, including the COP synopsis that we talked about earlier, which is available on CairoUp.com underneath the resources tab. Uh, the last part is the public opinion, that one of the things that we can do is to change perception of what the public thinks we are and, and where we're going. Uh, we've created 14 professionally produced lay explainer videos for the common conditions we treat. We also collaborate with like-minded people, uh, people like Jeff Williams, the Chiropractic Ford podcast. Um, uh, his book is awesome. Um, I highly recommend you know listening and reading both of his works of um, you know the, the health profession. We've also produced the Natural Solution and Chiropractic Toolkits, something you can find within the Chiropractic uh, Cairo software. Uh, and then we've also have created and continue to create over 3,000 public facing social media posts. Uh, these are include videos and infographics that we can put on social media automatically onto your site to help change your perception uh, of what we do as a profession in a positive way. Yeah, you've got lots of options as a provider as far as services that you use. And we know that some of those are services and some of them are missions. And we hope that you understand that Cairo Up is a mission, that we now have more than 2,500 providers in 16 countries who've chosen to be part of that mission to make our profession the undeniable best choice. So thank you for being part of that mission, and thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, we encourage you to hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. By following us, you'll be the first to know when we release new new content, and you'll have access to our entire library of episodes. We're grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode. We hope that you'll check out the next one and let us know what you'd like to hear about. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit CairoUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.